This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the Word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the show. It's 4 o'clock, and I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And this is The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions, questions about our common faith, uh, questions about something going on in your life, anything and everything is on the table. All we need you to do is call us. You can dial 210-340-9585. That's 340 340- 9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call us toll free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email your questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com or you can send them in with our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. If you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the Call Now banner at the top of the screen, and you will be connected directly to our studio producer. Our main number, one more time, is 340-9585. couple of scheduling things going on, and then we'll get right to some questions. By the way, we're getting a little short on questions that have been emailed in, so uh, we'd take those as well. Um, tonight, I'm going to be teaching in Genesis chapter 12. It'll be our second study in Genesis 12. Uh, we're, we're starting study the life of Abraham. It is so rich, um, so rich for New Testament Christians. So that is tonight. And then, of course, tomorrow night, Paula will be, or tomorrow daytime at the show, yeah, uh, of course, uh, Paula will be live in studio with me here on the date day edition of the program. So, ladies, that is your day. Let me go to our first phone call today. We've got Charles calling from San Antonio on line one. Charles, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hey, Papa Ryan. How you doing? I'm doing well, Charles. How about you? Uh, I'm trying to hang in there. I was calling in to see if I can get you and the rest of the listeners to pray for Laura. Uh, she's going to go to, into surgery in a couple of hours. Uh, she's oh, got man. an infection in her. She's got an infection in her bones and her foot. And as it is right now, they're only going to remove one toe. But oh. depending on how bad the infection is, it, it depends on how many other ones they have to remove. And she's in a lot of pain, and just need that prayer for her. Okay. Well, I'm going to pray right now, Charles, but I'm sure the audience will be praying for her. Please keep us posted on how she's doing. 
Uh, Father, yes, we, lift Laura to, we, we lift Laura to you and ask you to wrap your arms around her. She is in pain, and uh, I'm certain nervous. Uh, I ask you to comfort her. Also be with Charles. It's tough to watch your wife go through difficult things like this. But, Lord, we ask by the power of your Spirit that you give the doctors great skill and wisdom. We pray that the, the rest of the toes could be saved. Lord, please, merciful God, please meet us at our place of need. We ask this for your glory in your name. Amen. Charles, we'll keep praying and uh, keep us informed what's going on. Give our love to Laura, please. Oh, these are hard things. We've got another. I can ask the audience for prayer. Pray for little Freddie. Um, he's going through some things as well. He's had some health issues, but um, seems like nobody really knows what's going on with him. So keep our little Freddie in your prayers as well. God knows all the details. Here is um, kind of a strange comment um, and question from an it's anonymously sent in. It says, I visited your church yesterday, and I've had this question since uh, Monday, so this would be uh, this person was here on Sunday. I visited your church yesterday and was shocked to see the church was in a shopping center. Why don't you have a real building? It seems God would bless you with a real building if you were being faithful. Uh, Anonymous, um, um, it'd be easy to get really defensive about a question like this. I'm, I'm sad that you came in here and you saw the love that was in this place. You saw the power of God's Spirit moving and all you could think about was the... the, the building and the location and the way it looked um, uh, but but to some degree I understand I went through a period of time where I was pleading with God for building every church as a building a standalone building on their own and the Lord made it really clear to me anonymous that we were never to mortgage a building now if somebody gives me a boatload of money and we can go buy one that's a whole different thing but he said never to mortgage his money uh, his money's for ministry. And so we've been faithful to that. And Lord knows we need more space. Um, Lord knows we would like to have a standalone building where we could put the school and the church together and Malta Medical could be there and the other things. But one of the things that you have to understand, Anonymous, about the way we function here at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio is that everything we do here is for free. We can't save money. Money's always an issue here. We've never asked for money because God said not to let our needs be known. And so we have free school, we have free doctor's office, free house for women who are in trouble. We've got all kinds of ministry, including the, the, the gospel ministries, the radio ministries, and, and the other things that we do. Um, so we've learned to be quite blessed with our church in a shopping center. Um, this building has been wonderful to us. God has been so faithful to keep everything going together. Uh, our neighbors, we've been a good witness to them. Our landlord, God bless him, has been so generous and patient with us over the years. We've been here for more than 20 years uh, in this location. And um, we're doing fine. We're doing fine. Um, you know, if I had a wish list, I'd say, I wish we had a standalone building. I wish we could get a thousand people in here at one time. Um, but you know, it's not what I want that matters. It's what God wants. And God has been 
quite satisfied for a long time uh, to get a lot of ministry coming out of this little shopping center church. We have a lot of people, not much space. But to watch the Spirit move in this place is a beautiful thing. And I am sad for you that you couldn't get past the appearance of things. I'm really sad for you, Anonymous. Instead of getting defensive, uh, this question just made me sad. So I hope that explains to you satisfactorily. But uh, I can say beyond any doubt that the Lord has richly blessed the work that we're doing here many, many, many times over. So, enough for that. Another anonymous question. I am a new believer who is in a supervisor's position at work. How should I now deal with having to fire an employee who has not been productive? I want to be sensitive to how a Christian handles difficult situations like this. Anonymous, it is a difficult situation, and it's one that I have had to deal with many times. Uh, I was a boss in the work world before I got saved, and especially when I was a new believer. Um, you know, you know, you can't really deal with people the way people in the world do. So let me give you a couple of practical suggestions and then um, maybe a, a spiritual application of this as well. Um, the one thing, when you, when, you should, when you fire anybody, it should never be a surprise. Um, people need to know where they stand. They need to know how they're doing. And they need to be warned and they need to be encouraged and they need to be taught having failed in all of those areas, then they sometimes need to be let go. In spite of the correction, in spite of, of uh, you letting them know the best you can, you know, here's what I expect. Um, at some point, they need to be told the next time that we have to talk about these things will be the last time. And that way they're never surprised. And when your heart is right with the Lord and when you're doing what's best for the employee then if you have to let him go, that's just a fact of life. It's just sometimes the way things go. You know, in my supervisor's positions before I got to, uh, before I was called to be a pastor, um, I wanted to be sure that, that people really appreciated the work. You know, when they would interview for a job, they'd go, oh, I'll do anything, I'll work harder than anybody else. And then I'd watch them slowly fall in with the, the, well, take the job for granted. Well, you know, I can't be here all the time kind of things. And we just have to tell them, look, this is what you are accountable to do. This is a business. And you're accountable to your supervisors, Anonymous, to make sure that your department is being productive and you need to be surrounding yourself with capable people. Now, by being a witness like this, here's the spiritual application for us, by being a witness, by by caring enough about people to let them know what's going on. Now, I'm not talking about just the typical, well, I'm going to call you and write you up, but but really sit down and talk with them. Invest some time trying to find out what, it, what the issues are. And a lot of times, you know, you'll just come to the conclusion this person doesn't want to work hard enough. And then you can tell them, look, if you don't want to work hard enough, this isn't going to work out. So maybe it's best that you offer your resignation if they're unwilling to do that. You tell them, well, then I'm going to have to dismiss you. And I think that is not only the responsible way to handle it, but I think it's also the sensitive way to handle something like this. I think sometimes when 
our employees find out that we're Christians or we let people know that, hey, I'm saved, I'm excited about what God is doing, I think sometimes they'll try to take advantage of that. And when you want to be patient, you want to be fair, um, work is work. And it has to be all business. As I said, the one thing that you can't do is just watch them be surprised because you didn't tell them what was coming. So be very specific and very clear. And personally anonymous, I've been through this a bunch of times. Paula used to tell me that when I had to let a, 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 an employee go at work, I didn't sleep, I would toss, I would turn, I'd talk in my sleep, all those things. Um, I, I don't ever want my heart to get so hard that these things don't bother me. At the same time, um, there is the reality of the work world in this world that we live in. So just be sure that they know what's coming and be sure that you've done everything that you possibly could do to give him or her um, the opportunity to fix things. Eventually, when you get to that place where you say, you know what this is about, i got to let you go. Yeah, I knew it was coming. That's the way it ought to be. So I hope that helps. Thank you very much. Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions on this Wednesday show. Paul asks this question. I got divorced when my wife left me for someone else. Will I ever be able to remarry? Paul, you're free to remarry right now. And God never punishes the, the victim in, in a divorce. Um, that's to misunderstand the character, the nature of God. So I don't know who's telling you you can't get divorced, but when your wife leaves you and when she takes up with somebody else, you are free to remarry. You haven't done anything wrong. And so, yes, you're free to remarry. And um, wherever the Bible gives permission for divorce, it also gives a blessing with remarriage. So if you are the victim, then you're no longer bound. And we got to be okay. You know, Paul, I think sometimes we get so focused on certain verses, you know, the Lord God of Israel hates divorce. We read that and we think, I can't get divorced. And then we misunderstand Jesus saying anybody who marries another um, is causing adultery or is living in adultery and causing the, the, the new wife to be an adulterer. Um, we really need to understand what he's saying and we need to put it in the context. And we've made divorce sort of a boogeyman. You know, divorce happens because of the hardness of our hearts. But in the Bible, there are certain conditions where God gives us permission to divorce. And so if he gives us permission to divorce, we're free to do it, and then we're free to remarry after the fact. So, um, sorry for your circumstance, but you are now a free man, and if there's somebody else who's going to show up in your life, um, Paul, then you are free to um, marry and enjoy and be blessed and make sure this is a marriage that is committed and submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Here is a question I get a lot. This one's from Jennifer. She says, what's the most important thing to look for in finding a new church? Um, Jennifer, the most important thing is is doctrine, the Word. Uh, the Word has to be taught faithfully. 
um, uh, make sure that the doctrine is solid, uh, look at their statement of faith very closely. Um, I would actually listen online to to some of the pastor's messages, a couple of them, just to, to get a feel for what uh, I was going to be walking into. Uh, but the most important thing is to make sure that you're serving uh, a church that's faithful to the gospel message of Jesus Christ. And the doctrine is solid. Um, no goofy stuff and no light-hearted approach to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, so that's the most important thing, but not the only important thing. There, there also needs to be an opportunity for you to serve at that church. God has given you gifts. He wants you to be able to uh, to serve, um, utilizing those gifts. That's when your walk with the Lord gets really, really rich. So um, be willing to go to a church that, that that will open their arms to you being able to serve. And you don't dictate the terms. A servant serves wherever the need is. We don't say, well, I, this is my gift, so I do this. You serve, and God will make sure that you know what your gifts are and make sure that everybody else knows what they are, too. So doctrine and the opportunity to use your gifts in service are the two most important things. There are other considerations, style and how it feels, um, size. Some people are really uncomfortable in huge, huge churches, and um, um, other people are uncomfortable in really small churches. So find out what works for you. But Jennifer, you really need to be in a church where the Word is taught and you have the opportunity to use your gifts to serve the Lord. Hope it works out for you, Jennifer. Thank you very, very much. Let's go to Jimmy on line one from San Antonio. Jimmy, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Why? How are you doing? Jimmy? Are you there? I'm here, Jimmy. What's up? Oh, hey, um, this, I, read, I read this passage, Genesis 6, 4. The Nephilons, those are giants, right? Um, yes. Were on the earth in, the, in those days and also afterwards when the sons of God, so those are those fallen angels, right, the sons of God, went Correct. to the daughters of the humans and had children with them. That is now, and they, they they were destroyed in the flood, right? Yes. But then did they come afterwards after the flood? No, Jim, Jimmy. The the nephilim. Um, it was a word that was used to. Um, uh, describe giants, tall people. We know that Goliath, for example, was a giant. That was a general word. Uh, this is um, a, a story about uh, some of these giant men, men of renown, the people that everybody was afraid of, just like Israel was shaking uh, in their boots against against Goliath, um, men of renown. But they were the offspring of these angelic fallen angels um, and women uh, producing children, uh, humans, um, uh, angels who did not keep their first estate, Jude verse 6 says. Um, so um, they're, they're fallen angels. And w- what was really going on behind the scenes here is that Satan was trying to so pollute the human line that um, the, the, the Messiah, the Christ, could never have come from a human. Uh, there wouldn't be a human woman that would, would be able to carry the, the Christ child. 
And um, um, that's why God dealt with it so harshly. That's why uh, the context there is critical um, because it, it was it was required then that the whole human race, except Noah and his family, be wiped out. And then uh, after the flood, of course, uh, the, the, the earth got a whole new beginning uh, with Noah and his family. Uh, there are objections to this that people say, well, there's nowhere where it says that angels could have sex with women. That's just mythology or pagan mythology. Um, but but there's no other way to explain the flood. There's no other way to explain uh, why God had to destroy everybody in the flood. Um, and the daughters, or, or I'm sorry, the sons of God, that phrase is never used in Scripture to describe anything other than uh, fallen angels or angels, um, um, angelic creation. Um, and the, the daughters of men very clearly um, is is human women. And uh, people say, well, they couldn't have sex. Well, I, I always point people to Genesis 18 and 19, where uh, when the destroying angels, we know Jesus was one of them, when the destroying angels went to Sodom and Gomorrah to see how bad things really were, um, all the people from Sodom tried to gather around the home and bring them out so they could have sex with them. They thought they could have sex with them. They appeared as humans, though they weren't. And evidently there was a certain class or, or, or level of angel that was so powerful and so evil um, that um, that they could appear to be human in form. And um, that's exactly what seems to happen. Again, it's a disputed passage, but when you read the context, Jimmy, um, it, there, there, can, there can be no other explanation um, that is hermeneutically consistent with uh, the flood that follows. I mean, the placement of the sons of God in, in 6 and then the flood beginning in chapter 6 as well. Um, there's there's no other explanation. So, Jimmy, thank you. Hope that answers your question. Uh, I just when I say this, I'm I'm very dogmatic about this, um, but but I want to also be very honest and let you know that there are a whole bunch of people, probably more uh, in terms of, of of the numbers of people who have a problem with that because they just don't see that God would ever allow uh, fallen angels to have sexual relationships with women, but. I mean, that's what it says. Jude, in his little uh, one-chapter epistle, seems to to, uh, codify it. So um, that's pretty much all it can be. We're inside about uh, four minutes now, so let me get another question, and then we'll make it to the break. Uh, Rodney wants to know, is official church membership necessary? Um, Rodney, being a member of your local church is necessary. Now, official church membership, by that you mean signing a a commitment, um, um, a commitment to give 10% of your money, a commitment to take a class, all those things. No, that's not necessary, and that's not New Testament. We all need to be a member of church. Here at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio, we tell people if we see you the third time, it's like you're already a member. I thought you were. Well, what do you have to do for church membership? And because so many churches do have official membership policies, um, you know, we get asked that question a lot. But there's no biblical warrant for it. I have my suspicions about why pastors do it. But um, um, everybody should be a member of a local church, period. 
But should that membership be official uh, in covenant form, I think the answer is clearly no. So, again, if churches do it, it's okay. But but when churches try to exercise too much control uh, over the people in their body, I think it gets really, really weird. And we have seen so many cases, Rodney, where... Um, people come and say, well, my pastor won't release me from my membership covenant. And we just tell them, look, I don't know why you're not going there anymore, but you're a free agent. You can do what you want. Well, but don't I have to go there and be released? No. But see, that's the kind of control we try to exercise over people, and it's simply not the case, and it's not something that we should get caught up in. So, well, I would strongly suggest that being a member is necessary. Uh, officially signing a membership covenant is not, and I personally think, unhealthy. I think it's unhealthy. So um, I like the way we do it. We don't have any hold on anybody. Um, We want them to be here if they want to be here. If they don't want to be here, then it's okay. That's between them and the Lord. And um, my job every week, Rodney, is simply to minister to the people that show up and not worry about those who don't. We're inside a minute, so let me let me just add one more thing to this. You know, we get people all the time, every church does. People say, well, you know, I was gone for a month and nobody called me. Nobody came and got me. Uh, that's not our job. That's not our job. Our job is to minister to people who are here. And we can't really worry. We pray for people who aren't here. Make no mistake. We love them. We miss them. And we care that they're doing well with their walk. But they got to deal with the Lord themselves. Ronnie, good question. Thanks very much. we got 30 minutes left in the Wednesday show, 340-9585. This is the Word to Stand Up for Life. We'll be back in two minutes. Don't have time to call into the Word to Stand On for Life? No problem. If you've got questions, you can email them to Pastor Ron at PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. That's PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. Welcome back to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the show. We have 30 minutes for your calls and questions at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Andrea asks, what does it mean to take communion in an unworthy manner? Uh, That's one of the great questions, Andrea, that we all need to ask. It's coming from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 27. Let me read the passage and then we'll talk about it. It says, uh, Paul writing, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Um, there's lots of ways you can take communion in an unworthy manner. Let's just say, and we just had communion this past Sunday, so uh, these things, I always warn against these things um, during, the, during the communion celebration. Um, um, I, I always tell, first of all, unbelievers that, that communion is a family celebration. That means if you're not born again and you have no intention of giving your life to Jesus, 
um, then don't just take the elements because everybody else has one and you don't want to feel out of place. Uh, it's for family members. So if you're not covered by the blood of Christ, if you're not a born-again believer, um, that is an unworthy approach to the Lord's Supper. Um, but most specifically, Andrea, um, we've got people come in living willful lifestyles of sin. And they may have convinced themselves, well, it's not that big a deal. You know, God understands. Um, um, maybe they've just rationalized it, that, well, in their circumstance, it's okay for them. And then they come to the table. I mean, when we come to the table, I can almost hear God's voice, like he said to Moses, take off thy shoes for the ground you are standing on is holy ground. When we come to the table where we're celebrating and remembering the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. Not only did he take the punishment that our sins deserved, um, but, but he, 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 he went all the way. Father, he said, it's finished. The debt is paid. And then he could say, into thy hands I commit my spirit. And that's what we're celebrating there. And when you are living in unrepentant sin, um, men and women having sex, I should say men and men having sex and women and women having sex, include those these days, and you're not married, then you're not able to come to the table of communion. At least you shouldn't be able to do so. Now, I make sure people understand that, but then it's between them and the Lord. And he says, when you do it, you're sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Um, that, that's very close. Remember when Jesus was accused of casting out demons by the power of uh, Beelzebub, by the power of Satan himself. Um, when we partake of communion, and we've got this willful sin going on in our lives, it's almost like we're saying, okay, I'm going to take communion, that's going to make sure everything's okay. But when we know things aren't okay, when we know that we're living in sin, well, then that's what it means to take it in an unworthy manner. And it's very dangerous. It's very dangerous. Um, Paul says some in Corinth, when he was writing this, he said some in Corinth have, have become sick as a result of doing it. Some have even died as a result of partaking of communion in an unworthy manner. It's sort of like sticking it in the Lord's face. I know I shouldn't be doing this, but I'm going to take communion anyway. We have no communion. The, the word communion is actually the Greek word koinonia, and it means oneness. And so, Andrea, we cannot be one with Christ when we're living in unrepentant sin. And that's what it means. And, and clearly in Corinth, uh, there were some who um, were judged by God for partaking of communion in an unworthy manner. And it's something that we all need to be desperately careful of. We need to examine our hearts before we partake. We need to be sure that we're able to partake of communion uh, with a grateful heart. Um, and remember that this is a sacrifice um, that Jesus made on our behalf. Communion is always really special for me, Andrea. When I uh, first got saved, um, uh, you know, I was so excited. Paul and I would go to as many church services on a Sunday as we could. We'd get up and go to one really early. Then we'd go to a, a maybe a noon service somewhere. And then we'd go to the evening services that most of the churches um, back then had. That's, by the way, how I got introduced to Calvary Chapel. 
uh, went to a, a, a Sunday night service, started at 6 o'clock, and um, heard the Word taught verse by verse for the first time. Um, but when we would go in and we would see the communion elements laid out, Paul and I would get almost giddy. It was so exciting. Paula, we get to take communion. I remember one Sunday, very clearly, we took communion three times. And I was so excited about that. Um, and, 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 you know, if we can't be that grateful, then we need to examine our hearts. And we are all of us in danger of just taking communion mechanically. And I would suggest, Andrea, that that's also partaking communion in an unworthy manner. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. And when we remember, it's a memorial service. And for us, it's not sad, it's a happy memorial service because his suffering means we don't have to be punished by a righteous, holy God. His death and resurrection means it will never die. Jesus somehow, Andrea, thought we were worth it. For the joy set before me endured the agony of the cross. I always think on Communion Sundays of Jesus' prayer in John chapter 17, Father, show them that you have loved them just the way you love me. And those are the things that in communion we need to really, really meditate on and to examine our hearts to be sure that we're walking in righteousness. Thanks for the question, Andrea. Here's another anonymous question. Maybe I'm old-fashioned, but I think people ought to leave their cell phones at home when they go to church. What do you think about that? Well, uh, anonymous, I'm pretty old-fashioned as well. Uh, truth of the matter is, is there are as many people... I was almost going to say more, but I don't know that that's true. There is many people reading their Bibles on their phones now as bringing them to church. Now, I'm going to be kind of an old fuddy-duddy here, but um, uh, I, I think we miss out when we're not turning real pages. I think our Bible ought to be a, a, a real Bible. Um, I understand the, the comfort, I understand the value of having it online, have it mechanically. When I'm reading the Bible at home, Paul is not reading to me. Uh, I'm reading on my iPad. I've got really big letters set up, and I can, I can read on my iPad. But uh, it just seems to me in church that we ought to have a Bible, that there ought to be the ruffling of pages. Uh, it helps us to find where things are. Um, I think it was Paul I was talking to. She was talking about somebody who said, I've got to find the table of contents. Where's the table of contents? And I said, you know, if you've got to look for a table of contents, you're not in the Bible enough. And um, that just happens with turning pages. There's just something supernatural and miraculous about those pages. Having said that, um, I'm reminded often that we live in a world that is unlike the world that we grew up in. You say you're old-fashioned. I don't know how old you are. But we grew up in a world that's not like the world that we live in now. And these electronic devices are here to stay. And if they're going to bring them and they're going to look at them, I'd certainly rather have them looking at the Bible than texting while they're in church. So um, 
If something's not going to change, don't judge people. Assume the best. Um, if you see somebody who's texting in church rather than looking at their Bible and listening to the study, um, very politely, but firmly, let them know that this isn't the place nor the time to do it. I tell people all the time here that I'm sure God wants to talk to you today, but he's probably not going to text you. So we ask people to turn off their cell phones or at least turn them down. And when they're looking at their cell phones, and, and I know people are texting in church, I know it all the time, um, those people really need to examine their hearts. So I think we have to be careful. People our age, and I apologize if you're younger than me and I'm lumping you in with me, but I think people our age, we need to be careful of not judging harshly or looking down upon others simply because they do things differently. Uh, when I go to conferences because of travel, my Bible, because my letters have to be so big, is big and it's heavy and it's hard to fit in my um, my, my traveling case. Uh, in addition to that, um, you know, the pages are wearing out and falling out and, you know, it can only take so much abuse um, in a suitcase. So uh, I travel with my iPad when I need a Bible for a pastor's conference or something like that. So it's okay to be old-fashioned. Um, you do what makes you comfortable. Let other people do what makes them comfortable. Um, but let me plead with everybody. In church is not a time to receive or respond to text messages. And that's the problem. We're so conditioned. You might be looking at your Bible app, and then you get that little buzz that says you got a text. It's almost impossible for people to ignore it. Uh, I, I don't text because I can't see. Paula says there's a thing you can do that says uh, uh, I, when you get a text while you're driving, uh, driving can't not respond or something like that. Um, you need to set up a message when you're in church. In church, hearing from Jesus cannot respond. What a great witness that would be, wouldn't it? So that's what I think. Here is a question from Patricia. Uh, Pastor Ron, would you discuss the concept of subjective morality as it relates to Christians and churches? Well, Patricia, for Christians and churches, there is no subjective morality. We've got the truth, and we need to keep the truth, and God who does not change, that means the truth doesn't change. And we live in a world that's trying to make morality not only subjective, but so individually applied that, you know, I can do what I want, God knows my heart, that kind of thing. And um, um, subjective morality is, is an oxymoron. Uh, if, if your values, um, your view on truth is subjective, you're not a moral person, period. And we live in a world where the, the values are changing. I mean, just think about what the world's going through right now. Everything is changing. It's changing before our very eyes. Um, uh, uh, again, I'm old, but it wasn't very many years ago, 10 years ago, the idea that humans could be gender fluid was silly 
And yet we've watched the world change. Before that, that homosexual relationships were, were, were acceptable was anathema. People hid or stayed in the closet because they knew the world would never accept it and that was a better world then. But now, if you say that marriage is between one man and one woman, if you go so far as to say that sex outside of marriage, period, is wrong, then you're branded a homophobe, a bigot. See what subjective morality has gotten us to. And sadly, Patricia, there are churches who will follow along follow along with that subjective morality and and it's almost like, well, you know, God why would he care about two people who are in love? Well God cares because he loves people. And he wants the best for them. And I think one of the real tragedies in the professing Christian church is that far too many of us are getting trapped into a subjective morality world and our values are changing regularly to sort of get along in this world, go along to get along. And that is a really, really dangerous place for us to be. Remember, Patricia, I say it here often. When something is true, it never stops being true. If you believed something was true, and you've changed your view, and you no longer believe that that thing is not true, or that thing is true, you no longer believe that, well, then you're either wrong then or wrong now. Or, neither thing was true. And at least for me, and, and I, I think for most Christians, the comfort of knowing what God expects from us, the comfort of knowing how to please the Lord, you know, when Paul writes, find out what pleases the Lord, to put on the Lord Jesus. I think, I think knowing those things is a real source of comfort for us. Imagine if you went to a job every day, Patricia, and you didn't know what the rules were going to be. You went yesterday and you knew what was expected of you, but you come back the next day and and all of a sudden all, everything's changed and you don't know what's expected of you. It's very, very stressful. Well, God who does not change makes the rules. And he's the only one with the real authority to make the rules. And if God who lives outside the time and space made a rule... 5,000 years ago or 2,000 years ago, well, that rule still works today. So beware of subjective morality. It is especially damaging uh, to individual walks with the Lord. When we, we, we lose our grip on what's true, anything can become true. And that's kind of the world we live. Everybody's got their truth. It's your truth or my truth. By definition, truth is mutually exclusive. There's only one. And nothing that contradicts with that truth is really true. Here is an anonymous question. It says, I'm about to be kicked out of my family because I refused to attend a homosexual wedding of a relative. Should I reconsider? 
Uh, no, I don't think you should reconsider. I'm so sorry that you're going through this. Um, but but these are the kind of battles that we're going to have to face. With with ever-increasing frequency, we're going to have to face these kind of battles. And you're going to have to choose which side of the line in the sand. I always call that spiritual line that Jesus draws in the sand. And we've got to choose which side we're on. Are we here to please our family members? Or are we here to please God? You can't do both. Jesus said that I've come to divide a family, to separate brother from sister and father from mother and, 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 and child from parent. He didn't mean in any way other than if you're with him, you're on the side of righteousness. And so people in your family are not on the side of righteousness. Jesus said, whoever's not with me is against me. And we have to choose. Do we choose our family just because, well, family's family and it makes things so much easier? Or do we choose him? Now, let me talk about this for a moment. Because a wedding celebration is exactly that. It's a, it's a festive celebration. And to go to one of those things uh, is to not only approve of the, of the marriage, but it's to tacitly endorse it. You're my family. I'm here celebrating with you. And there's no Christian who ought to be able to do that. I've had Christians, anonymous, come to me and say, well, well, they know where I stand, but I'm going to go anyway because I want them to know I love them. Well, that, that's a cop-out. You're, you're, you're joining in the celebration of a, of a, a wedding that God forbids. And I understand the emotional reasons we do it. But the truth of the matter is, is that we're offending God in the process. We're making a choice to placate family instead of being pleasing to the Lord. Let your light so shine before men that they see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. When we step into the darkness, we're not glorifying our Father in heaven, nor are we giving other people a chance to see how valuable our relationship with Christ is. You know, we tell people we're Christians, but we're so quick to throw him away when something gets uncomfortable here, you'll remember, Anonymous, the, the episode where Jesus' family, his mother, his brothers, and his sisters went to get him. They thought he was crazy, out of his mind. And it was almost, and I think James was sort of the spearhead of this, but he decided, no, I'm going to go, I'm going to stop this. You know, imagine the unwanted attention that being the family member of Jesus would have brought them. Jesus, being the older brother, Joseph clearly died um, um, before Jesus got too old. And normally it would have been up to the older brother to take the position of the father. He's the one who inherits the birthright in Jewish culture. And they would say, come on, it's your job to take care of this family. It's your job to support us. You're out there preaching. You're doing these miracles. And the, the religious leaders are trying to find you and kill you. You're you're out of your mind. They tried to get him. And Jesus, when the messenger came, there's a huge crowd around him. And the messenger came and said, your mother and your brother and your sisters are here. And Jesus looked at him and said, who are my mother and my brothers and my sisters? And then he sort of pointed, I think, with his hand to the crowd. He said, these, those who do the will of my father, they are my real family. So I'm sorry you're going through this. I'm sorry it's painful. 
Um, but your family needs to know where you stand. If you take the easy way out here, they're going to realize that your Jesus doesn't really mean that much to you. If you were able to be talked out of following him, uh, why would they be interested in him? I'm trying to figure out a, if I have time for this question. What have we got? Three minutes? Okay. Hank says, my question is about Deuteronomy 8.2. Why would God test people to know what is in their hearts if he already knows? Let me read Deuteronomy 8.2 and 3, and then we'll, we'll deal with this and call it a program. Deuteronomy 8, starting in verse 2, says, Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years to humble you and to test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. Then the next verse says, He humbled you. That was one of the reasons that God tested them. You see, God knew what was in their hearts, but they didn't know what was in their hearts. They thought too highly of themselves, so this was a test that God would humble them. Then the next verse says, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna. God created the test of hunger so he could satisfy it, so he could provide for them, so they could see that, that God was their provider. Then he tells them that every man does not live on bread alone to teach you that man does not live on bread alone but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So God tests us, not because he doesn't know what's in our heart, he knows everything, but because we need to know. And it's in these tests that come along that our faith is proven genuine. Peter calls these tests trials more precious than gold. And the reason he does it is because we find out our faith is real. You know, if, our, if we're not tested, then we never know that we're going to take a stand for Jesus. If we're not tested, we never really find out what the depth of our faith and our commitment to the Lord really is. So we need to be tested. God sends those tests, um, again, not because he doesn't know what's in our hearts. It's because we need to know what's in our hearts. Uh, how many times have we made this rash promise to God? And Peter did it. Lord, I'm willing to die for you. I'll go with you and I'll, yeah, I'll go to prison with you. Well, that was a test. Peter found out what was in his heart and what was really in his heart resulted in the rooster crowing and Jesus being denied by the one who said, I love you more than all of these. So tests and trials, Hank, are a really, really good thing. God knows how we're going to get through every test or if we're going to get through every test. But remember, we're the ones who need to know. We're the ones who really and truly need to know. I don't think any of us like being tested, but it's necessary for all of us. Sort of like exercising our spiritual muscles, our, our faith muscle, Hank. We all need to experience those tests. So that's what Israel was told, and God says the very same thing to us who are active in the New Testament part of our history. CalvarySA.com live stream. Tomorrow, Paula will be live in studio with me on the date day edition of the program. May the Lord bless you and keep you. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. Lord willing, I'll see you tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630, The Word. Bye-bye. 
Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio.